0: This message is from Icon, from community, Icon church. community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro Atlanta and Metro Grace, community, and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org, at iconcommunitychurch.org. or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Today, we are beginning the season of Advent. This is an intentional spiritual rhythm, a time for us to reflect, to remember, to observe the advent of Christ, the arrival of God physically into our space about 2000 years ago. And this rhythm of reflecting before Christmas each year should in some ways feel familiar. It is a way for us to reorient, to observe together. But each season of Advent should also feel different, because we carry with us into the season what we are holding from the year. So this year we step into it, for many of us, with different levels of anxiety or exhaustion. We might be holding in our bodies different layers of grief. We maybe are stepping into this Advent season having experienced new ways that our faith has been tested. Add to that, for many, Christmas is always a season of sorrow and pain and loneliness, even when the year leading up to it had been smooth sailing. But thankfully, the truth that we are observing together at Advent has the strength, it has the grit to meet us in all of those things. The arrival of Christ physically here in this space is a reality that actually juxtaposes struggle with hope, pain with healing, and darkness with light. Christmas will actually ring hollow if struggle, sin, pain, and evil are written out of the story. This is not the season where we fake it. It is the season where we can be honest about the realities of our world. We can be honest here because Christmas is a story about how the divine arrived with the answer to loss, to heartache, to fear, and to grief. So Advent for us as our church it's not a way to pretend when we are being required to um, project being merry about sweet baby Jesus when we are maybe feeling crushed in our spirits. Rather, Advent is for us as God's people, a reminder of our lifeline while we are in the hardship of life. Advent for us belonging to Jesus and just trying to hang on when we are so wiped out, this is a drink of water in the desert. And Advent is meant to be this for us because what we are remembering in this time is a power that is so great that it is actually dangerous and threatening to what is of darkness and sin and evil. The reason for this season being able to bear up what strengthens, encourages, and brings hope in the midst of turmoil, sickness, fear, and uncertainty, is that this is a season that is actually declaring war upon what seeks to kill and destroy. The entrance of God into his creation starts this chain of events that will usher in victory, redemption, and restoration with baby Jesus's first newborn cry. Spiritual realm is rocked. The powers of darkness are scrambling. This is what they've feared. Now that he is here, they know that they're sunk. War is declared at the entrance of a baby in a tiny village born into conditions of poverty to a people that are oppressed. And we see the implications of this in a different way in the book of Revelation. Before we move into the text together, just some notes on Revelation for us. It's not a secret code to determine which nation is which horn on which beast. Rather, Revelation is a letter to the church. It is meant to bring hope and to challenge people as they are living in between these two advents, the two arrivals of Christ into our space here on this earth. Growing up for me, there was always at least one person in the church who had all the books and all the charts, and they were wanting to teach classes, trying to prove who is America, and depending on our current president, who's the Antichrist, and how's the timing of all of this panning out? While fascinating and interesting to read these theories, I actually enjoy it. When you look at Revelation primarily this way, we do it a great disservice. We then miss out on the rich, vibrant, life-giving nature of what such a unique letter is actually supposed to bear to us as God's people. So as we read this, we have to remember it's a letter. It is also an apocalypse, which is a Jewish type of literature. There were many apocalypses that were written around this time period. This one is dated between 60 and 90. Most scholars think closer to the year 90. And the author is often attributed as John, as he is exiled on the island of Patmos during a period of intense persecution from the emperor Domitian. And he's writing these visions. These visions he receives that reveal to us God's view of history in a way that is to help his people here in the present. And he's writing this letter to seven different church communities in Asia Minor. He addresses them all individually at the beginning. Some of them are experiencing brutal persecution. Some of them are dealing with doctrinal or practical issues. Some of them are apathetic. Their faith is weakening. So this letter and this vision addresses all of those things. It is ultimately to call God's people to faithfulness, whether they need to do that by enduring persecution, whether they need to fight the temptation to apathy. Be faithful, church, where you are now. In all those things, Revelation shows us that there are unseen but powerful spiritual dynamics at play. And here lies a great strength of this text. While at times it is very confusing, very perplexing, it does kind of give us this peek behind the curtain. You've heard their spiritual things at play. Here's a view of it. And knowing that is supposed to help strengthen the purpose of the church in difficulty to encourage and to bring us hope. So, Warm up your imaginations and join me as we read the first portion of our text, we're going to take this piece by piece today. And we're going to peek into Christmas and the implications of it from the spiritual realm. So Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6 says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be nourished there for 1,260 days. So two additional notes before we jump into this portion. While it pains me, I'm not going to delve into every piece of what things could potentially symbolize or represent, but I will touch upon what's important for us today. Also, we need to remember that revelation is odd with time. It is conveying at times past, present, and future all at once. One thing can mean more than one thing. We know that scripture in general can have these layers of meanings and revelation tends to do that on a unique level. So while that can be tough, we need to learn to kind of hold that the best we can and choose to have a sense of wonder at how God is doing things in a way that is beyond what we can grasp. So with that, we have our first sign. Our first symbolic wonder is the word in this portion of the vision, and it is this woman in the spiritual realm. This woman is more than one thing. In some ways, she is Israel as God's covenant people. In some ways, she is Mary. In some ways, she is the church. Her story, her being all of those things, is a birth story of the advent of Christ which is, in a sense, the birth of what is being set into motion for the church to exist. She is arrayed with the sun, the sun symbolizing that she is the bearer of divine supernatural light. Jesus is divine light breaking into darkness as he's born, and this is the key event for the arrival of the church, which is light breaking into darkness in our world. She bears divine light. Mary is the bearer of divine light. The church is the bearer of divine light. God's people is Israel. They are the bearers of divine light. You know, women from the beginning are given this holy and divine task to image God as life bearers. Eve is given the name life bearer. And after the fall, she is the one who is attributed as the answer from whom, for whom death will come. It will come through Eve. The answer will come through Eve. Mary is a life bearer as she cries out in labor pains. It is her body that is bringing into the world the ultimate answer to death. So it really is no mistake that the church is often given the dignity in scripture of being referred to in the feminine. Church is the woman here. Woman bears, carries, and holds what is of life. The church bears and carries and holds what is of life. The moon under the feet is this earthly light positioned underneath that divine power and light. Earthly power, even under the feet of the church. So as the woman as Mary, as Israel, as the church, are all having labor pains. There has been this long waiting, this anguish even for God's people, for the birth of the church through the arrival of the Son of God. And it's hard. God's people, the Jewish people, have had these longings for this promised redeemer and have gone through so much in waiting for that. But there will be victory through this struggle. There will be a reward at the end of this pain. For the woman is about to give birth to a child who will rule all the nations and be the head of the church. But she has this terrible enemy who is waiting for her to give birth that is bent upon consuming her child. And so we have this dragon. The word literally is this fascinating kind of serpent. Serpent is calling back to Genesis, the source of evil, the one who spurred on the downfall of God's good, perfect creation through sin. His red color is this fiery rage. He's bent upon death and destruction. The numbers of heads, horns are empires and powers that will really vary based on different interpretations. But for us, what I want to note is that this vision, the author is giving us this contrast between the dragon's crowns and the woman's crown. The Greek for the dragon's crowns is diadem. It's what is worn by kings, by queens, typically. But the Greek for the woman's crown is Stephanos, which is the crown that is given as a prize for people in victory. So the dragon here, Rage adorned himself with the crowns of earthly power. And the woman has already been adorned with the crown of a victor. So she enters the struggle, already wearing victory. Jesus comes into the world born out of victory. His birth alone is a victory. This is who's coming for us. So church, we enter into the fight as his already wearing a crown of victory, which is good because the dragon is also not alone. He has swept away. Literally in the Greek, he drags down, is the, phr- the phrasing. He drags down a third of the stars. So often in scripture, when you see the stars, heavenly lights, those are usually attributed as being angels, other angelic beings, other spiritual beings. So essentially, the dragon persuades some that are similar in his likeness, the same type as him, to rebel against God in this grasp for power. His tail swept away is supposed to make us imagine it lashing back and forth haphazardly. His fury, his destructive purpose is to recruit others to break with God. And he has to do this because Jesus coming into this space, coming into his earth is a challenge of power. And the enemy knows he needs an army in order to try to take him down. He knows he can't do this alone. So he directs attention to the heavenly lights because they also pose a threat to him if they are aligned with God. Satan, the enemies of light and life, sin, none of that is passive. They're set upon trying to destroy the Messiah at birth, trying to ruin what the church brings about in this world. Dragon knows he has to try to take Jesus down in order to take down the church, in order to take down God's people. This is a key moment for him. A lot rides upon his success here, so he stands and waits. And the woman gives birth to a son who is going to rule with a rod of iron. Rule here. Is not a word that is reflective of a dictator, a head of state, or a detached policymaker. Rule here in the Greek is the word for shepherd. The sun is not a ruler who hovers above and makes demands, he shepherds. He guides, he protects, he's hands-on in his care, he knows his flock, he knows his sheep, and he tends to them to help them flourish. It is an intimate, nurturing image that's followed up with what he holds. An iron rod. We've seen this combination in scripture before. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod, your staff. They comfort me. They guide me. In the hands of the shepherd who is our Messiah, iron rod means an unyieldingly just reign. It means this is a ruler who will not deviate from his righteous standards. This is a ruler who will not tolerate abuse or mistreatment of his creation, of his image bearers, or of his world. So the shepherd with the rod of iron arrives in the form of a baby born of the woman, and God snatches up his son. The child snatched away to God is supposed to be Christ's ministry from his birth to his ascension. We skip over his life in this part of the vision but that is also kind of the point. The enemy had 33 years while he was here to try to disarm him and he failed big time. God kept him safe. God kept him preserved. Jesus was able to with all the temptations to sin, all the calls from the darkness, all the attacks from the enemy, still unthwarted by him. The dragon failed. The enemy failed Sin failed. Sin could not prevail against him. And so the woman is given refuge in the wilderness. Wilderness in scripture is sometimes this safe haven where the afflicted hide. We get that with Elijah. We get that with David. Wilderness is also a place where God provides safety and sustenance. We see that with the Israelites, we see that with Hagar, but also the wilderness is a place of desolation and hardship. How true is it that as the church in this world, as the woman caught into the wilderness, we live in all of those aspects of wilderness. God's prepared a place for the church in this world, for us to have the purpose of bringing his kingdom to bear. And it is tough. It's toilsome. It can feel lonely and desolate. But also our God provides for us while we are here. He nourishes us along the way. He preserves his people in a desolate place. He preserves you in a desolate place. So while the elements of the wilderness are harsh, his presence with us is a refuge in it. And there's refuge in wilderness as war breaks out. Verse seven says, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called Devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Now, when we read this, we need to make sure that we're not assuming this is chronological. An apocalyptic vision written as a letter in a culture that we are not familiar with. It's operating outside of the confines of time. So suspend your linear Western thinking in order to try to hold the theological truths here. So war breaks out in the spiritual realms because of the success of the light and the failing of the darkness. War in heaven arises when the powers of sin and death are confronted by the sun. In this vision, it is Wonderfully poetic that the rebellion that arose from the unfaithful angels is overcome by the faithful angels and their archangel. In verse seven, we have this new character in Michael. Michael is traditionally thought of to be the protector of God's people, the leader of God's spiritual army. We meet him briefly in Daniel and we meet him briefly in Jude. This is also a good reminder for us seeing Michael that we don't exist in this Jesus versus Satan struggle. The dragon's counter is actually Michael. Jesus is way up here. So make sure that you don't elevate the capacity of the enemy's power by making him equal with Christ. So on earth, what is happening is darkness is being overcome by Jesus and by his image bearers who have his power in them. In the heavens, the darkness is overcome by the archangel Michael and the angels that are still aligned with God. In Jude verse nine, we have this interesting note about how at some point, Michael had to dispute with the devil about the body of Moses. So as Michael had to fight before with the enemy, about the body of the mediator of the Old Covenant, now we have the mediator of the New Covenant arming Michael with the capacity to finish the conflict and complete the victory. The dragon, the enemy, caused conflict in more than one realm. And Jesus' blood means all of it will be restored. Paul writes in Colossians 1 19 through 20, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus' blood defeats the evil one in the spiritual realm also. It is that far reaching. Also in this part of the vision, we see at the helm of the battle, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. This verse is a great connecting piece of what the evil one is referred to as throughout scripture. Ancient serpent is nodding to the deceiver in Genesis. The Greek for devil is the accuser or the slanderer and Satan often used in the Hebrew is actually a legal word for adversary. It is intentional that all of these which are echoed in different places are lumped together here. So we have one entity, but also when you think of the meanings of devil, the accuser, when you think of deceiver, when you think of the adversary, what is being defeated is not just a fallen angel. What is being defeated is what has deceived us. What has deceived us into thinking that our purpose and our fulfillment and our hope can be found in something outside of God. What is being defeated is what has accused us relentlessly, what has made us guilty before God. What is being defeated is our adversary of sin. We are, because of sin, objects of accusations and slander and deception all that he represents, we're guilty. And all that is in opposition to God, all that is destructive to his image bearers is cast out as the dragon is cast out in battle. He's cast out because of Jesus. In Luke 10, we have a story that I think we often forget where Jesus sends out 72 of his followers and they return to him after traveling to bear light and life by sharing and demonstrating Jesus in their communities. And when they come back to him after traveling, they are amazed. They say, Lord, even the demons were submitting to us. And what Jesus says of their work in declaring and demonstrating God. He says, I watch Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus' blood equipped the saints with this power. Because we are covered by his blood and empowered by him, when we are bearing light in the darkness, it's like Satan is falling from heaven like lightning. When you put on Christ and walk in humility and love and boldness and faith, when you love your neighbors well, when you put others before yourself, when you seek to point back and demonstrate Christ, you're throwing down what is of evil and darkness. So no wonder Satan is furious here, but he's unable to prevail in heaven. There's no longer a place for him there, so he's banished to the earth where he's trying to do his thing in between these two advents of Christ. If you keep reading in Revelation beyond where we will be today, his story isn't done. He knows he's going to end up in the abyss and fire. He's just trying so hard still to beat God's power, but he knows he's toast because Jesus being born, God coming here to handle it, that was the nail in the coffin for him in terms of what his ending will be. So after this battle, this war, we have a lovely interlude in verses 10 through 12, a break in the narrative for some prose. And we have this song of God's people after what is of sin, what is of death, what is of the enemy, are cast out of heaven. Verse 10 says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been thrown down. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you with great fury, because he knows his time is short. So where the heavens rejoice here, this is our reality as well, church. The opposer of God and the opposer of what is good, just and right has been and will be defeated. And the present salvation and power and authority of Christ is reason for us to celebrate. We celebrate what has been done with an anticipation of the next advent when Christ comes back and it will all be finalized. It's almost like we live our lives on the eve of another Christmas. And in our in-between time, it should encourage us that what is of sin, what is of the enemy, what is of darkness, can be defeated, we see here, by faith, witness, and perseverance. This would have been a tremendous encouragement to the members of the seven churches that this book is written to. They're being violently persecuted. They're being pressured to compromise spiritually. But you have the means to defeat what is of the darkness. Remember, you have the blood of the lamb. Had Jesus not come physically into this space and shed human blood, all of the accusations against us, we would not be able to answer them. But we can. His blood meets every single charge against us, be it from sin, or be it from who or what is opposing our God. And his blood empowers us to labor as the church, ushering in God's kingdom here until the second advent, which is coming, friends, because the enemy's time is short. Verse 13 says, "'When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down "'to the earth, he persecuted the woman "'who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness, where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river, and that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep the commands of God and hold firmly to the testimony about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to our God. So in our part of the timeline, we see here, dragon is so frustrated, he's coming after the woman what opposes God is always pursuing God's people, be it this entity of Satan, be it just the powers and forces of darkness, be it sin that is just crouching at our door in our struggle against it. And the reason that those things are coming after us, even if it is just our struggle with sin, is that If you belong to Jesus, you are a huge threat to what seeks to kill and destroy. You are dangerous to it. If you are striving to as best as you can faithfully and rightly image God in this world, if you are striving to bring healing to right wrongs to help others find hope, you are working against an enemy. You are working against sin and its effects. And it is hard. We can all attest to where that is hard for us right now. These images here are so fitting. It almost feels like a a river, a flood coming at us, just trying to sweep us away. But our God here, he promises to sustain us in the wilderness. The place we live even can provide rescue at times. The earth provides support. What God has placed around us that is still good can provide the support and encouragement to bear us up. Eagle's wings here are the symbol of the arms of God bearing us up through deliverance and protection and preservation. This is not a promise that God will give you an out from anything that is difficult by just flying in and taking you away from it. But what it does promise is that while we may not always get what we want as we do his work here, we will always have what we need, which is him. Deliverance and protection and preservation in the wilderness do not exist in circumstances. Deliverance and protection and preservation in the wilderness exist in Emmanuel, God with us the gift of his presence never leaving his people as we are actively working against what is destructive, we are never alone. And thankfully, because we do really need his help. If you are trying to call out what is deceptive and false, if you're trying to seek justice, if you are trying to steward what God has given you on behalf of others, you are undoing what the enemy is trying to do. If you are hanging on to God, even when it seems hopeless, if you're seeking to be as faithful as possible in what God has laid before you, you are in opposition to sin and its effects. And if when you fail in walking in God's ways and your response is to go to our Lord in repentance, Darkness is terrified of you in that moment. All the enemy can do right now is try to come after God's people, but take heart as God's people. He is trying to destroy this world because he's afraid of us. He's frantic because his power is so much less than he would like for it to be. His power is less than the power that we as the church have in us. He's afraid of those marked by the blood of the lamb. Satan is not our worst enemy, but we are his. Sin is not our worst nightmare, but the church imaging God here, no matter what comes our way, we are sin's worst nightmare. And this is why the birth of Jesus makes the powers of darkness scramble. Because they know what the arrival of God, him putting on flesh and coming into this space, will end up accomplishing for his people. That it will empower God's image bearers to do what they were initially created to do back in the beginning. And that together we are this force as we seek to bear witness to who he is and hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus until the next advent. You know, the, church, or the child and the mother, they're forever connected. To harm one is to harm the other. To injure the church, God's people, is an assault on Jesus. If you remember the words of the risen Christ to Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's persecuting the church, but Christ says, hey, when you come after my people, you're coming after me. And that is our Jesus. He looks at what the enemy is doing. He looks at what sin is doing to his people here. He looks at the effects of sin in our world and takes that as if it is right against him. So yes, it's tough out there, but don't forget that this is who's in your corner. His blood made sure of that. So as we go into the Christmas season and all the heaviness that it can hold, this story of dragons and war and weird timelines should actually bear us hope. This is a season where we hold a lot of tension because that's what happens when heaven and earth collide. That's what happens when our hero arrives on the scene to win us back from what is holding us captive. This is what happens when God arrives to deal with what has brought darkness into his good, perfect world. So church, we can remain faithful in that tension, in what can feel hopeless and dark at times, because the ending of this part of the story reminds us that our enemy, be it powers, be it accusations, be it the guilt from our sin. In all of its effects, our enemies are defeated enemies. The church wears the crown of our victor because Jesus has broken the powers against us already. We wear a victor's crown in the tension this Christmas season because there is therefore no more condemnation for those of us in Jesus Christ. So as we go into this Advent season, remember that in the midst of what is feeling like it is defeating us, that in Christ, you cannot be fully defeated in the end because our worst of foes already handled, it has been finished. And we have with us in the present, the means to meet the foes before us and places of refuge when it's just too much we have God with us. We have a shepherd with a rod of iron taking the assaults against us as if they're against him. We have the blood of the lamb and we hold and embody the word of his testimony. So hold firmly until the next Advent, until he's here again. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that we have things to hold to in the heaviness and the darkness and the struggle that it is here. And I thank you, Father, that you did not put us in this place in the positions we're in, not knowing what is laid before us. But Father, I thank you that you know fully and that you have already set us up well by giving us yourself in the midst of this. I thank you, Father, for the ways that you have um, offered us refuge and rescue at times, but I also thank you for the ways that you have given us what we need in order to endure when it is difficult, when it is hard. And so I ask for us as we step into this Advent season that you would help us to receive, to understand more clearly what it is that you are actually with us in the here and now. Where we are struggling to have faith and believe that, where we are struggling to even have any engagement with our emotions and that, we do just ask for your help. Because, Father, we know this is true. And so help us to hold firmly to the word of your testimony that this is true, even when. There might not be a real semblance of it in our lives. And we come to you asking you for help with these things in all honesty. Because where else do we have to go? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. So in this Advent season, Father, I pray for a renewed sense for all of us. A renewed understanding of what it is that you are with us and what it is, Father, that we walk as victors in the midst of what feels like it can defeat us. Help us to understand that anew. Father, not just for our own sakes, but for the sake of your church and for the glory of your name. In your name we pray. Amen. Can you please hear the benediction? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, to him be glory both in the church and Christ Jesus, now and forever.